Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined today by Juanita Chute. Good afternoon. Hi there. <laughs> Thank you for coming on, Juanita. It's great to have you. And tell us, Juanita, who are you and what do you do? Well, firstly, thank you for uh, inviting me to take part in your podcast. Um, my name is Juanita Duke. I'm a serial entrepreneur, an author, and a wealth coach. And I'm also a mum to two children, and two grandchildren, and two dogs, and a wife. There's a bit of a two thing going on there, you know, two yeah. children, two, two grandchildren, two dogs. <laughs> I love that. It's a serial entrepreneur. That's, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to getting into this. So tell us, first of all, what, what's fire in the belly? What does that mean to you? It's a burning desire. Yeah, perfect. That's, that's what have, it means to me. Have you heard of it recently or heard of the actual term? Oh, yeah. All, all my life I've been aware of the term. Never really thought too much about it, but it, it's something that's kind of been, um, you know, something I would have read in, in books and heard people talking about yeah, for a number of years. I've been, um, I've been kind of studying personal development and things for, for many, many years, maybe 20, 30 years, just reading books, not in any big major way, but just um, started off probably in airports picking up books when I was on a flight and you know so so terms like that I have definitely come across yeah out of interest what, what were the early books that you remember buying uh, probably Bob Proctor Jim Rohn um Steve Covey Love people it. like that but I think probably Bob Proctor and Jim Rohn would be the the ones that that I can remember I'm sure there was loads of others chicken soup for the soul mm -hmm. uh, when that first came out you know so that's many many years ago now so tell us, we're going to have to do a bit of an induction. You have the two dogs with you there. Who's who here? Um, this is this is one's Morley. This is little Morley. He's only got three legs and he's got um, spinal issues. So he's just um, snuggled up here at the side. Ted's a younger dog. He's only uh, just over a year old. Um, so he's a bit more fidgety. So he's, he's chewing on his ball at the minute. <laughs> so we, if we hear slurping in the background, we know it's not you. It's, it's not me. It's a dog. <laughs> love it. Love it. So it's a massive, massive passion of mine, dogs. Oh, really? Okay. All, like so. all, my, all my life, um, dogs have played a major part, you know, from, from my very first years when I, I begged and begged my parents to get me my first dog and they relented and got me a hamster. And it, just, <laughs> it just didn't cut it. <laughs> and then I, I still kept pestering and they said, okay, right, well, we'll get her, get her a cat. And then the cat, unfortunately, um, disappeared one night. And eventually, after many years of begging, they finally gave in and got me a little toy poodle called Mick, a little chocolate toy poodle. So. Oh, wow. What age were you? I was 12. It took me from probably about six or seven to age 12 to actually get that dream of, of having, having my own dog and never really been without them since. Oh, wow. It's because that's, that's, that's a long time and a long, long passion to try and get yourself a, a dog. I'm sure your yeah. parents were sort of sick to the back tooth, are you asking? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But oh, I love it eventually. Love it. So take us right back then, Juanita. Where are you from originally? And talk, talk to us about your upbringing. 
Um, born in Glengormley, Northern Ireland. Uh, moved to Carrie Duff when I was seven. Went off to boarding school when I was 12. Um, then I have, I have, I'm a bit of a Romany. I've lived everywhere I've been. Um, from boarding school, I went to, back to Carrie Duff, to Dundonald. These are all Northern Ireland for people who are listening and that aren't, um, aren't familiar with the terms. Then I moved to Dramara. Then I moved to Canada, to Ontario for a few years. Then back to Newton Ards. Then Moira, <laughs> then Lisburn, then Armagh, and now I'm in England. So I've been all I've been all over the place. I, I'm I'm kind of like there's no place that I would say that's home for me. Apart from Northern Ireland, does feel like home, even though I'm in England now. But I'm kind of I'm not really attached to any particular bricks and mortar. I'm I'm quite happy to be oh, well. so move, move, moving about. What what was what was sort of causing you to move then, or what was the the instigation? Um, well, obviously, the big move was the move to Canada, and that yeah. was around, it was 19, maybe 87, and it was around the time of the, 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 the poppy bomb, or Remembrance Day bomb in Inniskillen, and I had young children, and I just thought, this isn't the country to bring up my children, it's, it, you know, I just, I just did not feel safe, so, um, can't remember the year, I think maybe it was around 87, something like that. But then whenever we got to Canada, this was pre the internet. This was like long distance international phone calls that cost an absolute fortune. So you maybe phoned your parents once every couple of months and you wrote letters to your friends and you waited a month for that letter to get to them, for them to write a return. So. Uh, we really just got homesick thinking, yes, it was it was a nice idea to take our children to Canada and experience a life that was free from that fear of living in, in the height of the troubles. But actually, the price you pay is that they don't grow up with grandparents and cousins and you miss out on your family friends. So we ended up com just coming back again. Oh, wow. So long were you in Canada for then? About three years. Brilliant. Absolutely loved it. Really, really lovely way of life. Um, but as I say, just came back for a family. And Ontario, what, what brought you there? My sister had been living in Dublin and she had gone the year before and she had moved to just outside Toronto. So it made sense for us to go to near where my sister was. And also I had an aunt and uncle and a couple of cousins that lived in Toronto. So that was just, it just kind of made sense. Like a bit of a home from home then for you? Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of, you know, somebody familiar there. Brilliant. So take us back then. So, you know, there in Glengormley and carried off really, you know, had well, first of all, had you brothers and sisters or much of a family? Two sisters and I'm in the middle. Middle one. So you're the, uh, you're the special one? <laughs> I don't think the middle one's the special one. I think the first one is the the favourite and the little one's the baby and the middle one just has to get on with it. That's, that's <laughs> how I see being a middle child. <laughs> just don't make too much noise, you'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you it. got into trouble. If, the, if your younger sister did anything wrong, it was always your fault because I must have led her astray or I should have known better or whatever. And my older sister was eight years older than me. So she kind of wasn't about so much, you know, because... 
when we were at primary school, she was at grammar school, and when we were at grammar school, she was at university. So um, anyway, I was just I was the one in the middle. Brilliant, love it, love it. So how was school for like sorry younger years? I mean, what would we have met if we met say a seven year old Juanita? Um, quite independent. Always happy with my own company. Able to amuse myself. Um, passionate about animals. Knocking on everybody's door in the neighbourhood that owned a dog and asking, could I take their dog for a walk? I also um, did a lot of babysitting, child minding, looking after. I was really kind of that maternal streak, whether it was for looking after people's dogs or looking after people's children. I was always, um, I think it was probably one of the older children on the street so that other people that had young kids, I was always the first to go in and look after the babies and amuse the toddlers and whatever. So that, that, that was me. There's a bit of an entrepreneurial streak there is coming in very early age, you know, between your child I, I was, and dog walking. Well, yeah, I guess I did get paid for the babysitting. I didn't get paid for the dog walking because that was kind of, I got paid the, the price or the, the, the pleasure of walking the dog was my kind of remuneration for it. <laughs> babysitting. Yes, definitely. I, I got paid for that. I didn't think of that as being an entrepreneur. That was just what, that's what every, every kind of child did. When yeah. I was growing up, you, you got a few pennies for helping out some some parent on the street, you know. Well, what did the money go toward? Can you remember? Oh, the Bunty, which was okay. a comic, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a comic and sweets, that's what it that's what it would have been, yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's always great. So tell me, how was how was school then for you at that age? I mean, was that something school did 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 it for you or not really? Yeah, no, primary school I absolutely loved. Um I was very fortunate in that we went to a prep school, um, very small classes. I, I came away from, from school in the primary school in the top stream, like one of the best children in the class academically. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of lost that when I went to grammar school. And I don't know if that was because I find it so easy in the prep school to be at the top of the class without really much work. And then when you went into grammar school, I kind of thought, well, I could just coast here too. And that didn't quite, that plan didn't work out for me. But certainly I loved, um, I loved primary school and I, I kind of believed anything was possible. I remember believing that anything was possible when I was at primary school. Oh, wow. And think of, um, we had a, like a writing competition, like to have, we, we when I was at school, you learned with, an, an ink pen and it was italic writing so like it was quite a while ago and I remember that they um in p7 the teacher had like a writing competition because she wanted everybody's writing to be a little bit neater than it was and I can remember having absolute total belief that I could win that weekly prize of of the best handwriting in the class and I won it like week after week after week until the teacher finally abandoned the competition <laughs> because it was clear that um, nobody else was really um, there were I think maybe the others got a little bit disillusioned that they could win it because I was always going to win it but there was something in my head even at an early age that if you set your mind to do something mm. there was there was no question that it wasn't possible you know so so that that was that was me at primary school where do you think that came from out of interest i think it, it must be just from 
perhaps the teachers you know I, I don't know it, it's just it was it was there or maybe it was my parents or maybe it was um maybe it was because in the neighborhood where I grew up I was the kind of the, one of the oldest children in fact I probably was the oldest child so I probably got a lot of responsibility and that responsibility gave me a belief in myself because maybe I got a lot of praise I don't know where it came from but it it, it just was there so tell us about your parents what did they do or what were they what was their they background both, they both worked for um in those days, it was the GPO, the General Post Office. Mm -hmm. It's now um, BT and Royal Mail, but in those days, it was GPO. Um, my mum was a telephonist in May Street down in Belfast. With that's where the like, where the operators all worked. She was an operator, and my dad was an executive engineer um, for BT. Well, that's a good good careers then. Yeah, both working, which was quite unusual because. This was in the in the sixties, and you know most women stayed at home, it, mm. you know, rather than went out to work. So I was a latchkey kid. Maybe that helped with my um, my being able to be confident and to be independent as well. Because I mean, it was quite it wasn't unusual for your parents to just like disappear off for the day, and you just had the key to the house and. You looked after yourself, and then they came home from work and just woe betide there was dirty dishes in the sink or anything like that. You know, um, that's just that's just how it was growing up. It's funny. I mean, that 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 sort of paints a picture of you know you can see where independence would come. You know, that just wouldn't happen nowadays. I mean, no, God, God forbid you, you left a child under the age of probably fourteen, fifteen alone, just wouldn't happen. Yeah, you'd be reported to the social services, but it wasn't, I think maybe it was just more of a neighborhood so that my parents would have mm. known that if something was up, I could have gone to Mrs. So-and-so across the road and, you know, I would have been looked after, you know. Sure. Yeah. What about extended family? I mean, had you had you friends and family around you or? No, not at all. Um, I mean, we saw our grandparents on a Sunday, but they didn't live near us or anything like we didn't have cousins or aunts and uncles or anything like that that lived li lived nearby just the neighbors hmm. wow love it so take us on through then so secondary school how was the transition from you were saying it was a bit of a, a bit of a wake-up call yeah well firstly i was a big reader i read a lot of ina blyton books like the famous five secret seven and they went to boarding school and boarding schools were all about midnight feasts and adventures where you go out and you um, rescued people and fought pirates and all sorts of stuff. You know, so I decided when I was in P6, P7 that I wanted to go to, to boarding school um, because this seemed like a better life than I had at home. <laughs> so so um, luckily I passed my 11 plus, which meant I was able to get into boarding school for, I'm sure my parents had to pay something towards the boarding, but it meant I, I got in and um, it, it didn't live up to the tree. It didn't live up to Ina Blyton's uh, version of what going to boarding school was. So um, it was a weekly boarding school. So I got home, I got home at weekends. I went on a Sunday night and came home on a Friday afternoon, but I, I didn't really, enjoy school at all i didn't settle for a couple of years um i don't know why but i just didn't i just didn't like maybe didn't like the teachers i didn't like um i, I don't even know why but i just didn't really settle till probably about the third year and 
I, I struggled academically to keep up, whereas, as I say, I had never struggled to keep up. Also, my dad was really, my dad was really good at, me, at helping us with our homework and making sure we did our times tables and whatever. So he was kind of behind and there was a bit of a, you know, accountability to keep up with your studies. And we did our practice 11 plus papers and all that sort of stuff. But I guess whenever we went off to school, he had no, he wasn't involved in kind of that teaching side anymore and keeping us on track. You were kind of, you just had to do it yourself and left to myself. I didn't, I didn't really do any work. And then I guess I got left a bit behind. And then I really wanted to be a vet. And everybody else at school, they wanted to be doctors, they wanted to be dentists. Um, for me, it was to be a vet. But the chemistry teacher didn't like me very much for some reason. You know, it was just one of those, you know, that's how it was. Personalities, some teachers liked you, some teachers didn't. But to be a vet, you had to study the three separate subjects of biology, chemistry, and physics. And because the chemistry it was a very small school and there was probably only about 18 people that were allowed to go through to O-level out of the year of 60. Um, you know, there's two class 30. And only when it came to subject time in third year of what you chose, I missed I missed the grade to get into chemistry. And then I kind of just drifted thinking, well, if I can't be a vet, what else will I be? And the, I remember they, they brought in a careers teacher and she took, we each went into the library and you had your, this was your one in the whole time at school, you got this one 10 minute session with a careers teacher. And she, for, for whatever reason that year, she told everybody that they should be a librarian. So there must have been a shortage of librarians. <laughs> so, you know, that didn't help any. I wanted to be a vet. I was being advised to be a librarian and um, I just really didn't have a goal. And I think when you don't have a goal and something that you're working on, you kind of just drift and don't see the point of knuckling down. So that was it. I kind of left school with very minimal few levels and, and that was it. And, that, and didn't really didn't really have anything that I was working towards. It's amazing the impact a, a teacher has on you, isn't it, really, when you look back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for a chemistry teacher, as you say, it's sort of to be taken out of your hands almost, you know, or for somebody else to decide for you. It's quite, it's quite impactful. Yeah. I think because it was a small school, there wasn't the facility to allow everybody to do what they wanted to do, you know, and maybe in bigger schools, they can, um, there's more choice, but there just wasn't the number of places, you know, so that's it. I got history or something. <laughs> can't remember what I got instead but it wasn't it wasn't the subjects that I wanted so the life of a librarian was waiting you then <laughs> <So>. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how many of us went on to be librarians but that was obviously the job of the day whenever um, she came to do her sessions with us you know. wow so take us on through then so I mean finishing up in school what was the plan then there wasn't any plan um I left school I signed up to do some night classes because I loved French and um, I wanted to study. That's the only really, I loved maths and I loved French. And I thought, well, I'm not going to go back to school to do A-levels. I'll maybe do them as a night class. And I just got myself a job in the local grocery store. And then 
I met my first husband and I was only, he was my first boyfriend. We, I was, what, 16 years old, very naive, knew nothing, thought this was the love of my life and ended up getting married when I was only just short, just shy of my 19th birthday. And I, when I think about it, I'm, it's absolutely horrifying that anybody would be getting, but it wasn't, it wasn't that unusual. It wasn't necessarily common, but it wasn't unusual for somebody to get married that young mm. either. Mm. Um, and then by the time I was 23, I had my first child. So, um, and then I chose to be on something I don't ever regret was I chose to be a stay at home mom. Um, until my children were about eight and ten and then I kind of started doing some part-time work um, but um, that 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 was that's kind of where I went from straight out of school into a low-paid job um, and into motherhood really. And tell me were you were you reading a lot of personal development still at this stage or no, can you remember? Not at all that didn't start until probably around 95 or so or maybe maybe the early 90s um yeah probably around 95 i went to work for um a company called sofa workshop i don't know if you remember them they used to be in the old habitat building and i was employed as their as the retail manager for them and they were a national company uh, we were the only branch in um northern ireland at the time and I think I did a lot of commuting back and forth to England, either to go to other branches or for training and whatever. And then I think there were just really airport books that I started to pick up. And that's when I really got into more of the personal development side of things. So take us through, so you had the initial, you know, where you were, you know, you stay at home mum. I mean, how did, did you, is that something you enjoyed? Is that something you Absolutely, you absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I, I wouldn't have done it any other way. I, I, I love being a mum. And probably, as, you know, as I mentioned to you at the very start about wanting to have a dog to look after and then wanting to look after the neighbour's children. That was, that was my pleasure. That was something I really enjoyed being that kind of caring, nurturing person. So being a stay at home mum, was was always going to be on the cards for me and in those days it was easier to manage on one person's wage mm. you know it wasn't the cost of living wasn't when i'm talking here early 80s you know so it was possible to get by on a lot less money than parents need nowadays to to kind of um just get by absolutely so I'm trying to work out the timeline here. So, you know, you're 23 when you had your first child. Mm -hmm. Then you're saying it was like eight and 10 or something. You were saying that you, you, you know, you, you, you raised the children. Yeah, I, I think um, it will, probably would have been around ni 93, 94, something like that. When then I started to just take some part-time jobs when they were at school. I worked in a little toy shop, just stocking the shelves. I remember that one. Um, can't even remember they were just they were just oh, I, I did a lot of like when I say serial entrepreneur that's when I kind of started looking at um ideas for working for myself some were better than others some were pit for pin money I was really into crafts and making things so I um had like crafted craft fairs at Christmas selling handmade rag dolls and things like that and I actually even wrote a book 
which is still for sale, um, called Making Rag Dolls. And um, so it was just little thing, little things like that. I entered a lot of competition, well, not a lot of competitions, but I remember TV, TVAM, if you remember them, going back a while mm -hmm. with Anne Diamond and Giles Brandreth and things. They had a competition, a knit design and knitting, a knitwear competition. And I won a prize on that and went over to England to meet Christopher Biggins and all the, you know, kind of people like that. This was the day, if, I don't know if you remember, Giles Brandreth, he always wears these kind of, Wacky clothes. Funky knits. Like it was those days when those were in and I had designed a knitwear and I think it was a fashion show and I went over to London to meet the stars of TVAM and to see my 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 jumper on the catwalk type thing. So then that got me into them when I went to Canada. I approached a yarn manufacturer over there to see if they would be interested in using me as a freelance designer. So I did that for a while. So pretty much all the little businesses that I had they were small craft um, type businesses. The first business that I got involved in was, obviously I, I worked, I'd done retail management and um, through Sofa Workshop and I worked for another furniture company as well. But my first sort of business that was enough to support our whole family was a pet sitting business that I started in 1995 mm -hmm. and or around 95. No, might even have been like a tiny bit later. But um, in those days, nobody knew what a dog walker was or a pet sitter. Now it's just common language. If, you, if somebody said, oh, I have a dog walker coming in, everybody would know what a dog walker was. But in the late 90s, no one knew what a dog walker was. But my sister that had been in, in America, she had told me what dog walkers were. And I'd done my own research on it. And I, I found... Um, a, um, an organization called Pet Sitters International who were based in America. And I thought, I'm going to join this organization and I'm going to find out about what it takes to be a pet sitter because that would absolutely combine my passion for dogs and also allow me to work my own hours from home around, around my family. And I got myself registered with them. I went over to New Orleans and I went to their conferences and I learned out how how to be a pet sitter professionally and have all the right contracts in place and insurances and um that was a really a really great little business that i had going for quite a few few years and then unfortunately my marriage um fell apart and i kind of set that business aside because well for different personal reasons i decided it was probably better for me to go back into the corporate world rather than um um, work from that business was being run from home and just uh, with the divorce things things changed and life just went a different direction so that's interesting I'm curious what what makes a good dog walker or good what's the difference between dog walking and dog sitting uh, a dog walker is somebody who comes to your home and takes your dog out from your house and takes it out for a walk and pops it back again a dog sitter could be somebody that either stays in your house when you go away and sits with the dog or else the dog comes to your home and you do home boarding, which we did as well. We did both. We went to people's houses that were out at work, took the dog out sort of around midday for a walk and left it back so that the dog got um, some exercise during the day when the owners were out. But we also did home boarding for people who didn't want to take their dog to a traditional kennels when they went on holidays. 
they came and their dogs stayed with us in our house, sat on the sofas, had their dinner in the kitchen. They weren't in any sort of kennels or anything like that. So that's really what a dog sitter is. Oh, very good. Very good. And what, what makes a good dog walker then? You're saying, because that was, that was your main business, right? It was the dog walking side. Well, dog walking and, and the dog sitting, the home boarding, you know, okay. they, were, they were both equally, and cat sitting than we did as well. Well, I think you have to genuinely love dogs. There are people now that are doing it and they're just doing it for the money mm. um, because there's a market there and um, they're maybe not, as ethical as they should be but for me it came from a genuine place of passion for dogs and wanting to look after them and wanting to give people a really good alternative to one leaving their dog home alone all day while they were out from maybe eight in the morning to six at night um and as i say for the the home boarding it was for people who wanted to be able to go away and enjoy their holiday knowing that their dog was happy in a home environment not in, in a kennel so um, i would say that you know really having a genuine passion and a love for the dogs is, is where, um, is how, you know, that's where I came from, a place where I came from. I'm, I'm just, well, a couple of things there. I mean, I'm curious there that, you know, 95 seems to have been a, a bit of a pivotal moment, you know, your personal development, you know, that your time in then the sort of the corporate world as such, you know, as well. And what was, what triggered that just before then? Do you know that sort of change or that, Probably because, you know, my kids were getting to their teenage years. They were, at, if they weren't at school, they were going to their friends' houses. They were going out at weekends. So you're kind of, you start to become, that role of being a mum was coming to, that being a full-time mum and having to be there for them every minute of the day was kind of coming to an end. And you're starting to, to think, oh, okay, what, it's time for me to do something now you know, for myself as opposed to um, being a mum and, you know, maybe think, maybe life was getting a bit more expensive, do you know, and maybe that extra, it would be nice to have the extra income because we weren't the sort of family that could afford to go on holidays. Like we never, we never suffered or we always had more than enough to, um, to get by or our bills were always paid. There was never any issue that way, but we didn't maybe go on didn't go skiing or we didn't um, go on foreign holidays. It was always just something. We had a caravan down at Minerstown, a static caravan, if you know where Miner, near Torella. So we did, we, did, we did have lovely, lovely holidays, but I think maybe you just wanted to see what it was like having a bit more money in your pocket and, uh, and also just the challenge of, of getting out and seeing. I, I missed out in the career at the start because I didn't have any ambition or any drive or any anything to aim for but then I kind of realized well you know there are other opportunities now and uh, why, why not go for them just curiosity I mean looking back now I mean how how would you handle that or what would you say to your younger self you know where you sort of you were coming out and seem almost a bit lost or not knowing what to do at what at what age do you mean at what stage saying to myself well, I'm curious there, I mean, because even I suppose around the time, you know, when you're sitting with the careers teacher and they're suggesting one thing that just obviously doesn't quite tally for you or, yeah. you know, veterinary was, you know, a, a, yeah. an option there. I mean, because I suppose nowadays you say, well, if you if you can't be, you know, if you don't want to be a vet, then you could be a veterinary nurse or you could be 50 other things, you know. Yeah, well, I think just 
life is so different now that what we have access to now via the internet and the information that we can have i mean you you can learn about any subject at any time at the click of a button so i i don't know that i could have given myself or anybody could have given me different times you know different advice because times were just different mm. just there wasn't the access to knowledge and access to opportunity then that there is now yeah a bit of a curveball and i probably know the answer to this cats or dogs dogs <laughs> do you do you ever walk or i mean i don't know if you can walk a cat or you know can yeah you... i used to have a siamese cat and i used to put a harness and lead on it and take it out for a walk so i do i've had cats you know both um as a child at home as i say we got a I got a cat after the hamster, but it wasn't a substitute for the dog. And then later on in life, I did, you know, I've had cats as well, but dogs are really, um, I think it's because you can get out and about with a dog. You know, I, I like mm. to get out in nature and I like to get out and walk. And um, a dog's a better companion really for, for doing outdoor stuff. So, Where did that come from originally? I mean, what's the first dog you remember? Was it a neighbor or grandparents or something had a dog? No, my grandparents didn't have a dog in my lifetime. They did have one before I was born because they had a, a lead in a collar that hung up and nobody was allowed to touch it from a dog that they'd had that had been put to sleep. And it was it's called Judy and it was a Maltese, but I never met it, but it was definitely revered. The memory was, um, was something that they held dear. I think it was neighbor's dogs, just, you know, um, I don't know, maybe, you know, I... Not that we had a lot of television growing up because there wasn't much, but I did tend to like programs like Black Beauty with the horse and things. And um, obviously a horse wasn't an option when I was growing up because that was just, I mean, it just wouldn't even occur to you that your parents would be in a position to buy you a horse or a pony or whatever. Um, so a dog was probably kind of the, the closest thing that might have been accessible to me. So I, um, as I say, I just... I just enjoyed walking the neighbor's dogs. And you always, I mean, I'm just curious, I suppose, you know, with dogs, do they, do you find that they're naturally warming to you? I mean, do you, do you have a connection with dogs? Yes. I, I, I believe that I am, you hear people talking about being empaths and, and understanding people. I, I can look at a photograph of a, an animal and pick up on its energy, you know, on, if it's feeling sad or worried or I don't, I don't, I don't even know how I do it, but I can just tell what a dog is feeling emotionally by looking at it. Oh, wow. And when you say see, you know, or feel the energy, I mean, can you actually see the energy around the element itself or is it just something you pick up on? No, it's just some, it's just a feeling that I pick up on in the same way that if somebody walked into a room, they can sense an energy that, Oh, something's just gone down before, you know, when you, when you walk into a room and maybe somebody has been arguing and there's, you can just feel that there's a tension in the air, even though there's nothing other than feeling that energy. I guess mm. that's what I can feel around dogs as well. Just, just a gut, a gut feeling. That's very interesting, and especially, you know, with with housing dogs and all that, because you, you're changing their environment, and, and I know dogs can generally be quite sensitive to changes. Changes, mm. you know, their owners leaving them, or you know, there's yeah. a lot going on there. So that's that's quite a talent. Maybe it's just something that because of you know being around dogs for so long it's just something you naturally pick up and no matter if i'd been in a different field it, it's just something that comes with the 
the territory and spending so much time around around them you know what about the obedience side is that something you do with with the dogs we do trick training i have a, a, a membership um an online membership which is all around trick training so people who want to um just teach the dogs to do really fun stuff so it's not so much the obedience and uh, kind of the good manners and the stuff that you know you know that kind of dogs need as well but this is more just the fun stuff it's about helping people to build a really good bond with their dog because the dogs enjoy it it's fun and it's time that you spend together um working on something um and it just creates that deeper connection and the deeper bond yeah it's i tell you, i mean what i mean what characteristics would you say a dog has that you know as humans we would you know sort of really benefit from well they live in the moment they're not really they're not really interested in what's just gone by or what's what's about to happen they're they're just in the moment enjoying life and i think that's a good it's a good thing to to um try to emulate or to, to be like just concentrate on what's actually happening now mm. that's true well as i say man's best friend and they don't tend to hold grudges well i haven't met any dogs that are holding grudges no no they're, they're any of that i've owned they've always been very they're always very very devoted to me i mean i am i am the center of their world they you know they, they tend to kind of pretty much adore me and um focus on me and they they want to be with me and their love is unconditional they don't ask for anything in return obviously just just feed me and water me and and cuddle and, and love me and that that's that's kind of they have very low demands you know mm. brilliant uh, and i'm just there's something there's a reoccurring theme that seems to be coming up as well i was just curious that mm -hmm. you do seem to like a bit of a competition you know we're getting the handwriting competition the craft the knitwear you know is there is there something you a bit of a <laughs> competition buff here i wouldn't think that i'm overly competitive mm. against other people but I think I do like to challenge myself. Like I, I, I had a horse that I used to do endurance riding on and endurance riding is about covering a distance and still having a healthy horse at all the different stages of the, like you might do 25 miles in a, in a ride and you'd be vet checked at different points. So the challenge is to have your heart, your horse, your horse's heartbeat at a certain rate when you come into the checkpoint um so you're not i'm not competing against anybody else in the field that day it is literally just my own horsemanship so i like that level of competition to challenge myself to be better as opposed to be better than anybody else if that makes sense it does yeah yeah that's interesting almost a challenge about what's possible or the system or you know how as you say how to be the best you can be yeah that, I would say that's more than competing against other people. That's not really, even the, even the one winning the competition as a child, it wasn't to beat everybody in the class. It was to prove to myself that if I wanted to win that competition, I could win it. Nothing to do, irrespective of everybody else's performance. You know? hmm. Just out of curiosity, I mean, which, who was your stronger supporter? You know, your mother or your father? Who was the one that always felt you felt was behind you on these challenges i would say my dad unfortunately he's passed away now in 97 but he was a, a pretty 
he was a pretty supportive dad, I have to say. Yeah. Mm. I was interested because you were saying that he, you know, in the junior years, he was helping you with the homework and stuff. That was quite forward thinking. Yeah. Yeah. No, he 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 was um, he was a really good, you know, family man. Not he liked nothing better than to, you know, take us in the car on a Sunday and and do the Sunday driving things. That's what you know. Now, now people go away anytime but in the, when I was growing up a Sunday was a special day you know where you got in the car and you took a picnic and my mum probably would have stayed at home but I would have gone off with my dad and maybe gone up the more mountains and, and I think that's probably where my love of nature is it's probably not, now when I think about it my love of horses um my dad if we'd been out for a drive in the country if there'd been horses in a field he always would have stopped the car and would have got out and would have lifted a big bunch of grass from the verge and tempted the horses over to to have a bite so i think he came um i wouldn't say he came from a an agricultural or a, a country background because he didn't he grew up in belfast but the generation before him was kind of from Sligo and they had a lot of like the west coast of Ireland had a lot of farms so I think probably his interest in animals came from his um, parents so that's probably where I've got some of my love of animals from. I love it obviously even in the background there you have the uh, the Stephen Brown the cow what's it called? I, I think he's called Angus that one I have a couple of them I think he's Angus. <laughs> <laughs> I have a guilty pleasure with you know pictures of cows as well. There's Owen, yeah. Oco- Owen O'Connor and a couple of a couple of his paintings which yeah, are colour c- colourful cows. But anyway, yeah, I like them. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a g- great characters, especially cows. They just kind of do their own thing, regardless yeah. of what you think. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I get distracted. But um, so yeah, so so really, I'm curious. I mean, obviously, you were bringing up the kids, and you know, the divorce had happened through that time as well, and. So you're finding yourself then, you know, going into, you know, the, the corporate side of things really. So 95 onwards. So take us on through then. Um, well, unfortunately, I was made redundant twice. Within the short, within a few years. Well, when I say a few, maybe eight years between the, between the age or the, between between 2000 and 2008 something like that um i was i went through redundancies twice so that had quite a an impact financially um on me because obviously i was divorced and sort of had bought a new apartment and made was made redundant and by that stage it wasn't easy to get employment when you'd taken many years off to be a stay-at-home mum and I'd run my own business, the pet sitting and things. So I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of on paper skills. So um, in terms of, you know, like put, putting your CV out there. Um, so it was, it's, it wasn't the easiest thing to find yourself being made redundant twice in a relatively short space of time. And that's when I decided, right, being my own boss, I've got to do it again because you can't depend on on being an you know on being an employee. Um, so I, I just thought it was much more suited to going back to finding a business that I could run for myself and be, have better control than I had um, as an employee. That makes sense. So, what what was the chosen business then? 
um, was to open a doggy daycare. And um, I started with my business mentor, who you know, Pat Slattery, mm-hmm. about um, uh, maybe four years or so ago, four or five years ago. And um, it just made sense to do something with my passion, which was dogs. And in Northern Ireland, there weren't any doggy daycare. And a doggy daycare is somewhere where you take your dog in the morning and you drop them off and your dog plays all day with other dogs and then you pick them up at the end of the day. But I had heard of a doggy daycare in Sweden and I did some research because if usually if I'm going to do something, I like to look and see who's doing it successfully first and see what I can, what I can learn from them, not necessarily to do a, a copy of their business, but just to be inspired by, by the good points of theirs. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it properly. I'm going to install webcams so that people can, when they're at their desk at work, they can look on their smartphone or their laptop and tune into the cameras and watch what their dog is up to so that we're totally transparent, where it's not like we're just getting people's dog and sticking them in a cage and then letting them out, you know, when, when they come to pick them up. Um, I wanted to do it as you know as as well as I could. So um, that probably was the first. I, I tried other things before before that. I tried having a fudge and chocolate or fudge and toffee making business, um, but I realised that um, it was absolutely delicious. People wanted to buy it for sure. But when I worked out how much I was making per hour, it it was never going to be successful i tried a little bit of pet sitting at home but i was living out in the country so there wasn't the real demand for it um so i tried a couple of other small things but then i decided no come on let's you know i'm going to work with this business mentor and i'm going to do something really um that i could really get my teeth into and would earn me a really nice income and that that's what i did Uh, so i can't remember exactly when that was maybe about five years or so ago now that's interesting. So really from your redundancies, 2007, 2008, you know, then obviously the recession is kicking in and you're trying all these sort of different things, you know, fudge and different things yeah. as well. So you have a period of trial and error and, and going through different options and variations until you eventually come to the doggy daycare side, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's great. I mean, the one, the persistence there and the fact that you keep going, keep trying and trying is, is, is really, it's quite something. It shows a lot of strength. That is my biggest, if somebody said to me, what is your biggest strength? It's resilience. It doesn't matter how many times life knocks me over. I always get back up again. I can't ever, I, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe in myself. And I don't, I don't ever think I would ever, anything could ever happen to me that I wouldn't be able to pick myself up again, no matter how big it was. Um, as I said, that's, that's what I believe is my biggest strength. Do you know why? I don't know. It's just how I am. I, I never really thought about it, but I know like family members and things, they'll say to me that I'm the, the most positive person that they know and that they're kind of in awe of how, no matter what circumstances I have, that it just, I just go, okay, well, it is what it is. So what, what are we going to do to, ch- to change it? And I'm, I, I have no idea. I have no idea if that was just something that's in your genes or it's something that you're to do with your environment growing up. Or it's just part of my personality, that, that strength, that resilience. 
Because, I mean, as a single parent and, and, you know, going through those businesses and all the different trials and tribulations, that's, you know, it's quite a, you know, take, that takes a lot of resilience and strength to do all that. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I, I don't, I say I don't know where it comes from. You just, I just get on with it. Mm. That's the sort of person I am. It just, you mentioned there, obviously, your, your dad passed away in 97, you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that was a bit of a tough occasion for you. Very, yeah. Unfortunately, it was um, cancer, and he didn't. I don't know if it was just a man thing that he didn't investigate it in time because you know you don't do that. You know, um, men don't. He wasn't the sort of man to make a fuss, you know. But also, I don't know how much, how how long he knew before he told us because he didn't tell my mother until. Um, very close to the end. He even went for his radiation and everything and didn't tell anybody he was going for his treatments because he didn't want to worry people. That's the sort of that's the sort of man that he that he was, you know. So mm. it's 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 always a tough one, you know, and unfortunately my own mother passed away in ninety seven. It was, you know, yeah. sort of a, a strange time. But yeah. that adage that that sort of take of whether you do tell your family and and you know people want to protect those around them but actually sometimes sometimes it's protecting and sometimes it's not yeah so i think he told us in the august and he passed away in in december so we we only had kind of about four months of um from knowing to the end but by the time he'd passed he had everything was in order you know he'd had um got all of his finances all changed transferred into my mum's name and um didn't didn't tell his friends didn't want any pity you know it was it's you know he didn't want any fuss just mm. quietly you know told the immediate family and we didn't really tell anybody because he we respected his wishes and then he went into hospice and unfortunately passed away in the Marie Curie center mm. but that that was a very private person very very good person um never had a bad word to say about anybody wouldn't allow gossip or you know anything like that it, you know it was just a really nice um a really good genuine good person well it's i mean it's it's a different time i suppose as well but it's amazing what you know different people the way they handle it yeah yeah that was that was his way that he chose to handle it just very privately and without any fuss and that was that was how he was in life as well what sort of cancer was it prostate that went into the bone mm. tough very yeah. tough yeah it's see i mean you had a lot going on in your life and got a lot a lot of things to go through yeah yeah but hey I said you, you get you on you. You just have to get on with it. What what choice is it? You know, what other choice do you have but to just, you know, mm. keep going? So take us on up then. So 2015-ish, something, you know, doggy daycare. Mm-hmm. So where did the idea come from? And then so you mentioned going over to Sweden to look at a, an operation over there. No, I, I didn't go over. I just researched one that was in Sweden. Mm-hmm. By that stage, there was the, you know, um, the internet and Bravo, so you were able to to do research without having to um, go over the. So that I really just kind of looked at what they had, and you know I could see that they had cameras, and this was something really, really new, and um, 
I, I say I joined Pat's mastermind group and he was kind of quite instrumental in pushing me forward to get it started. He said, right, you know, let's let's start advertising. Said, you know, but I haven't got any premises yet. He said, no, but you don't need premises. You need customers. You don't need, you don't need premises. You need customers. So he said, right, let's get the enrollment forms out. So I mocked up this quick website and started putting out on Facebook that I was opening a daycare in Lisbon in March. And I had no premises whatsoever, but all the enrollments started flooding in. People were signing up, saying, yes, please, can because the dogs had to go through an assessment, a behavior assessment to make sure that they um, people weren't just offloading their um, troublesome dogs or aggressive dogs or whatever. We wanted dogs coming in that were really passive and really playful and friendly and were going to get on with in a, in a group dynamic. Um, so before anybody could come for their first day, they had to book in for an hour's or two hour, I think it was, um, free trial. So that was the hook, getting people to um, book a free trial. And, it, you know, that that's how I got people to enroll before I even had premises. And then once I had the confidence of seeing that, oh, yeah, there's a market out there, people are people are signing up to to book their free trial, then... I managed to find some premises and we got started with the, the daycare in March of, must have been 16, 2016, I think. Yeah, yeah, March 2016, we started. So tell us, how many did you start with? How did it all work out? I think on the first day, I mean, it, it kind of was slow enough because people had to bring their dogs in for being assessed and whatever. And it took probably six months to get it up to um, maybe 20 dogs a day, something like that. But by the end of the first year, we were at pretty much at capacity at around 35, 40 dogs a day coming into the daycare. And by that time, obviously I was employing staff as well. I think we had about two or three full-time staff and two or three um, part-time staff as well. Um, so I'm sure and I, and I absolutely loved it. You know, I mean, I was in my, in my element. Um, what could be better? Uh, we expanded. We put on a new a new yard out, out the back. Um, was about the premises were about five thousand square feet, and we had another maybe seven or eight thousand square feet out in one yard, and then another smaller yard about two thousand square feet. So it was plenty of plenty of room for them. People absolutely um, loved the service, and um, I probably didn't enjoy being an employer. Um, that was that was my first time of being an employer as opposed to maybe just having somebody uh, doing a little bit of freelance work for me. Mm. But at the same time, my um, my daughter was living in England and she just had her um, twin twin girls, and I really wanted to be a granny. I, I didn't want to be the sort of granny that came over once or two weekends a year. To see her grandchildren I wanted to play a much bigger part in their lives growing up so I made the decision that I was going to sell the business and move to England and start working online rather than in a physical um, premises where I needed to kind of be there on a daily basis so so that was in 2000 and 
towards the end of 2018, I decided I was going to sell the business. I sold it uh, pretty much straight away to a member of staff. And I moved over to England then uh, in Jan February 2019. I think it was February. Wow, that's, um, that's an amazingly rapid growth and, you know, of a strong business and a strong business model and then to sell. I mean, that's with it literally within, what, two, three years? Within two and a half to three years, I had gone from conception to an idea that, you know, into a business that was saleable. Mm. Um, how, how did that feel? It actually felt really good to be able to create something that had a really good value at the end of it and to be able to think that, you know, I started it off from an idea and saw it through to um, being something that could literally change my, my life in terms of, if I hadn't had that business, I wouldn't have been able to, if I hadn't been able to sell that business, I wouldn't have been able to afford to just say, right, well, you know, my priority is my family and my children, and uh, I'm now in a position to make those sorts of decisions. Um, and I decided at that stage that I wanted to still continue to work, but I wanted to be location independent, and that was really important to me. So I knew that going forward, I no longer wanted to be tied to staff or a physical premises. I wanted to... Um, be able to work from wherever I happen to be, whether that's with my grandchildren, whether it's in France. I do love, absolutely love France. And we went over um, a couple of winter winters ago. I thought I've always wanted to live in France. So I'm going to, I'm just going to rent a chalet up in the Alps, in the mountains, in the snow for the winter and just pack my car up and, and off we go. I still had the daycare at that stage, but I had manager in. Um, but I just loved that idea of, saying, you know what, I can, I can do this, you know. Um, and it was just a, ma a magical winter for me because I just love, as I say, I love France and I love the snow. And took my dog with me and um, just had a, had a, a lovely, a lovely, a lovely experience. And that's what life's about for me. It's about um, being able to experience, um, thing, you know, things like that. I'm really struck by your, um, I suppose, clarity to, I mean, because you're obviously not afraid to move around or to change your environment to make things happen. Yeah. You know, you seem incredibly clear on that, that actually just, it's almost whatever it takes type scenario. Is that, is that a fair? Yeah. That That's very fair. I'm very independent minded and I'm very driven and I believe in having goals and I believe that anything is possible to achieve. Um, you just have to want it enough. And sometimes there's stages in your life where you, there's nothing really that's a big goal. But when it's really important, I totally believe in my ability to achieve anything that I, if I, if I set my mind to it, I'll, I'll work, I'll find a plan and I'll, I'll make it happen. Hmm. What makes something important to you? I suppose if it's aligned with my values and um, and what are your values? Well, animals have to come in there. So being compassionate towards animals, being compassionate, being caring, being fair, um, integrity, being honest, and I think probably always wanting to do something to the best of my abilities. 
And if I do something, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, well, what could I do to make that better? You know, and I don't always succeed in everything, you know, in terms of trying to make things the, the best that they can be. But I always do my best. Um, I always give everything my best. Mm. I'm curious, I mean, in terms, in terms of inner dialogue, mm-hmm. you know, or, or sort of how you speak to yourself, talk to us about that. I, I just really well offset already in terms of it's just there's a belief there that I can do and I don't know that I necessarily have that those conversations or inner dialogue as you, as you put it it's just it's just something that's there a belief that's awesome that anything's possible and I don't know if that's nature or nurture or whatever it's just just it's just me it's just how it is mm. That's amazing, you know, and I suppose to have that independence and and you know, I love I love your values, you know, the the you know that sort of compassion. You can see that in there, you know, the integrity and the honesty side, and it's it says a lot about your character, and you know, which is which is great. So you daughter twins mm-hmm. off to England, change yeah. the scene. Yeah. And so what, what that brings us up to, well, to, to very recently. So what, what, what's on the cards now? Um, I have a, a couple of different online businesses. The first one is that I've already mentioned, which is my Tricks and Treats Dog Training Club. And that's really just aligned with my passion, with my hobbies and my wish for people to have better bonds with their dogs that they're not just for taking for a walk and cuddling them on the sofa there's so much more that you can do to to have that deeper connection with them but I'm also a wealth coach on um, which I do online and I help complete beginners get started in the world of investing in property bullion um, and shares and business and that probably comes from my own need to create some sort of financial security having been through um kind of those couple of a divorce a couple of redundancies a really bad hit in the 2007 2008 crash where myself and my uh, current husband um we bought a piece of land we were going to build a house on it the builder started the project, had cash flow difficulties and walked away from it. We couldn't finance the build from the balance of our mortgage because, well, obviously when when, when you're buying a house off a like a, of a builder and it's a, a one price for the one thing, it's, it's priced at that. But if you stop halfway through and you have to go out and individually source it, the money wasn't in the pot to finish it. Uh, we ended up in a nine-year legal case against the builder, which we eventually won and were awarded £90,000 in the high court, but he went bankrupt and never paid us anything. So we took a massive financial hit. Um, so we've got to kind of later in life, without this financial security that I imagined that we that I would have had, had I, you know, when I reached that stage in my life. So I, I was became interested in investing and getting to a stage where my money was going to be working for me rather than me working for money because I think that's 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 what I'm aiming for at the minute. And then in, in learning that for myself, um, 
And my experience of being a trainer and a teacher, not just in the dog world, but even when I was in, in retail, I was a retail, um, I was doing training. I was also a telesales manager at some point. So I've been involved in teaching and training for quite a bit um, up, up through the years as well. So I, I do love it. It's something I'm really passionate about and it's something I really enjoy. And I get a lot of feedback from people to say that I am actually very good at explaining something to other people in a way that they're able to understand. I'm able to meet them at whatever level of understanding they currently have. Um, so I decided that not only was I going to benefit from learning about investing myself, but I was going to um, help other people to improve their their wealth education so that they could benefit from it as well. So I teamed up with a lady called Karen Newton, who is a multimillionaire investor who owns a business called the 2.73 Club. And I became a franchisee for her. And I currently have um, a club online to, as I say, help complete beginners who know absolutely nothing about investing just to get started, because I think it can be quite intimidating if you you know if if you haven't grown up with somebody in your family who was investing in shares or investing in property it can seem like just a massive deal where actually it's if you break it down there are very simple strategies for people uh, to get started with and so that that's what i'm doing currently i love that i mean it's it makes so much sense and especially as you say with you know i i understand you know the legal side and getting locked into legal battle and what's supposed to be a home and all the rest is it becomes I'm sure a bit of a living nightmare for you the whole thing and, and still is we're not mm. even like the other side of it yet um without going into too many personal details because it's obviously there's other people involved but yeah it hasn't been nice because we have a house that still isn't finished um that's in negative equity um so but it, it is what it is. Pick yourself. <laughs> you have to pick yourself up and just, you know, find, okay, well, that's where we are. So what can we do to get out of that situation, which is, it was um, kind of an ongoing process. That's amazing. Yeah. But even still, you, you sort of pushed on. Yeah. I love that, you know, and, and the fact that the, the daycare business has come in. So you've, you've obviously got great gems of ideas in, the, in your head there, which is great. I, I, that's something about, I think I'm a very creative person. That's mm -hmm. where if you talk about people when they're in their flow, that's when I'm in my flow, when I'm creating something, whether it's coming up with an idea, um, working on my marketing strategy. I just love that creative process um, that goes behind behind things rather than the admin side. That's not, not, not my forte. <laughs> talk to us about that. Cause I mean, flow is a word that I, I particularly love. I mean, and what, where would to get you into flow state what would it take and, and what does that look like for you if i'm really passionate about something that i'm doing and it's just the ideas are just flowing with ease i don't have to think about you know i don't have to think oh what, what can i do about this what can i do it's just like naturally the ideas are just flowing into me and i'm executing them time just seems to pass because i'm in the zone it's not an effort. It's it's not a work to me, um, and I'm loath to be pulled away from my desk because I've got my teeth into a project that I'm really enjoying the the creative process of, um, and that that's flow to me when I'm really getting such a lot of pleasure out of out of something that I'm creating. Mm. 
I love that because I mean, obviously, your creative gene seemed to kick in quite early. Because we've got this right. You had you you wrote this book in 1993, making ragdolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was almost the first. Well, I don't. You tell me. I mean, was it the like a, a first uh, go at passive income? So you write a book and it's there and it's it's sort of yeah. But I didn't. I wasn't thinking about passive. I didn't know the word passive income. Yeah. I just, you know, I just I. I don't even know how the idea came. Yeah, I guess I thought I must have just seen something about writing a book and it's a good way to earn an income writing a book and then you sell it. So you just, again, I just went, I went to the library. This was in the days when there was no Amazon that I remember back then. And if there was internet, it was the dial-up one where you had to unplug your phone and plug in another wire and it went beep, 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 while, while you were connected. And you didn't stay on too long because it was running off your phone bill rather than just free broadband that you've got now. But I remember going to the library and looking at craft book publishers and writing down their names and addresses of people who published craft books and then making a doll and make, writing a pattern and then posting it off to all these different publishers. And I was just fortunate that, yeah, a couple of people said, no, thank you. But one of the first, I probably only sent it off to maybe about five five publishers. And one came back saying, yeah, we'd love to publish your book. So, Well, but I, I wasn't thinking passive income in, in those terms, but it, obviously that's what it was, passive yeah. income. That's, I mean that's very typical of entrepreneurs in general they don't even know they're doing it I know for me I was the same with property it's just like well that's just what you do right you know and confident. yeah very much an unconscious confident and nowadays I can look back and I can say well this I was following this strategy it was like no I can assure well at the time I wasn't consciously following it but it just as you said somewhere between flow state and natural ability and just desire and passion that you kept going and you learned and you found out and you kept going and did it and success you know sort of you know favors the fortune you know what is it braveness i can't remember the saying but um, there you go exactly so um you know that so even there, the book, I mean, because to write a book, well, one, to collate it, then to send it to publishers and to go through that whole process. I mean, that's, I'm assuming you didn't have, you weren't surrounded by loads of people that were doing this. This was something you took on yourself. No, no I, I, I don't even remember now, you know, what made me think that it was possible. Mm. just one one another example of me thinking anything's possible oh, oh I'll write a book. Here we go. Send that off. <laughs> you know, um, I don't really, I don't even remember how the idea came about. Did you enjoy the process? I mean, is there is there books in your yeah. future? I was very proud of that, you know, um, because it, it was published by, um, it wasn't like the self-publishing that you do now. This was an actual publisher who took it on, who I made all the different dolls in their different um, guises. And then they went off to a professional photographer who made, did absolutely stunning photographs. Um, so it really was something to be to be proud of when it was like in my hands you know i remember going to a book signing at waterstones and um you know so it was was a big deal i love that and do you think there's there's more books in you well i've I've since written another book um it's a dog training one it's called the little paws dog training for children Mm -hmm. i did that i suppose a couple of years maybe two three years ago um, so that's out there as well so yes i actually do think there is another book in me um and it's going to be about France, and it's going to be about property investing in France. Ooh, I like my it. journey. Well, 
Talk to us about France. So you, you were saying that became a bit of a passion and you mentioned there sort of hiring a, um, a chalet and things like that. So what is it about France? I think it was the romance of the language. <laughs> when I was at school, I think, as you say, you know, your school teachers, they have quite an influence on you. And I, ha- I particularly loved the French teacher. I mean, I had a real schoolgirl crush on Mr. Corey, as his name was. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us either. But I mean, I was the teacher's pet. I mean, I was his little pity shoe, as he used to call me, and that's a little cauliflower, something like that. Um, because I, I always did my homework and I made sure that I, because I loved French, um, I made sure that I got it right. And um, he always, if, if he, if the, you know, when you asked your question in class and somebody has to spell it, you put your hand up and, you, and everybody gets it wrong and you go to the next person and you get it wrong. And then whenever he was getting really frustrated, he'd ask me because he'd know that teacher's pet at the front here would get it right. So I just, I don't know if it, if that's, that's where it all started, just that love of the language. And um, we went for our school trip when I was 13. That's where the school trip was to Paris. And this was my first ever trip on an airplane or out of the country and um, I just loved everything about it going to the Eiffel Tower and um, it was just uh, and Versailles and the Louvre and all those places and then since that I've you know I've really loved it we've been back to Paris for a few sort of weekends been down to Biarritz we've been to the Alps many times for our honeymoon we rented a motorhome and drove for three weeks around France so I've just it's just a country that I absolutely love um, and uh, I will definitely be back again very soon and I will definitely own property in France. Love it. What's, what's the dream? Where, where can you see yourself or where, where are you drawn to? Well, I love the Alps. We've been there not just in the snow but also in like when it's lush and it's green. I think maybe we went there about October time in the Alps. And honestly, when I look at it, when I'm there and I look, there's something in my heart that just nearly makes me choke with tears. With, with the just the, I just feel there's something about, I, I can't know what it is, but there's just something about it that really tugs at my heart. And I just, I just love those mountains. So yes, I would love a home in the Alps, but I'm also, I also love the sea. And I would love to be able to have a house at the sea as well. So maybe there'll be two two properties in France, one at the sea and one, one in the Alps. Love it. Loads of opportunities out there. Yeah. yeah. Bit of a curveball. Just curious, I mean, I'm, I'm not sort of prying into your, your religion or stuff, but would you describe yourself as religious or spiritual or where would you put yourself on that front? Definitely not religious. Uh, I think maybe that's a Northern Ireland thing. I just saw religion as something that was conflict. Yeah. But spiritual, absolutely. I totally believe in <clears throat> in the universe and the law of attraction and energy, you know, um, like energies attracting like energies. And I love being out in nature. Um, so d- definitely, definitely spiritual. That's great. And you heard a while ago you talked about you know, setting out your goals and things like that. Tell us, what does that what does that look like for you? Well, financially, it's to um, which I think is that has a knock on effect on other goals. Is to be in a position where money is working for me rather than 
me working for money. I don't intend to be uh, retiring when uh, you know working till till a drop type of thing. I'd like to be in a position to um, not have those uh, kind of financial worries or something. I'd like to be in a, in a position where that's an option for me. Do you, do you always write them out and is it always long term or what sort of over yes, what sort of term period? My little goals, this is my phone, which is never far away from me. That's my lovely Ben on the front. And my goal card is in my per, in my mobile phone Brilliant. My on the back. So I know um, definitely, definitely know where I'm headed with my goals. That's brilliant. And what, what sort of time period do you normally work on there, just out of interest? Not too far ahead, maybe a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose I have longer goals as well, like a five-year one, but I kind of, sometimes, my, my, my five-year goals, I kind of change my mind before I get a year in and, and I've kind of maybe changed my mind on, on exactly what that goals look at because life changes, things around you change. So what, what was really important to me, well, I, if I picked something a year ago for what I'd really like in five years time, I bet you that's probably a bit different now. Whereas those shorter steps, they're more where I can, they're, they're kind of easier for me to kind of achieve, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Just, um, Thanks a lot. It's always it's interesting the way different people uh, sort of activate their mind and their goal setting, and they're you know they're, they're really sort of inspiring themselves. Some people can work on really long and large goals. Some yeah. people it's, it's, it needs to be broken down into more attainable steps. So it's always interesting how different people attach you know and attack it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, but and you've mentioned a couple of times there about more sort of almost about living in the now. You know, and a bit like sort of animals as well they're very much living in the now yeah is that the, something that I, you I, I def- yeah i definitely um maybe that's why long-term goals aren't so hugely important because what's important is today am i happy today absolutely mm. do i have everything i need in abundance today absolutely you know um there's nothing that's really I'm enjoying today. Mm. I get up, I, you know, I take my dog out for a walk in the morning. That's my absolute pleasure. Me and me and my dog out, out in nature. What, you know, I've got my, um, my daughter around me, my grandchildren around me. I'm living very comfortably. I don't need to worry about Bill. I live within my means. It's not like, you know, I'm, you know, it just, I just have what I need today. Mm. And there's nothing more important than today because no, that's just, that's just how I, I live. It's, yes. It's, I want to have goals for the future. I still want to achieve more, but being successful is being happy today. Mm. That's awesome. And tell me, I mean, what do you have daily routines or do you have certain habits that you practice at all? Uh, they, they vary according to the time of the year. This time of year, I would be up early, you know, and maybe out with the dog by about seven o'clock in the morning. And that's kind of the first thing, a little pot of tea. And I'd go for maybe an hour and a half or so with the dog, then back to do a couple of things around the house. Then I'm at my desk for kind of nine o'clock. When I'm out on my walk, sometimes I listen to podcasts. More often than not, if I'm on a long walk, I will listen to a podcast for at least half of the walk. 
Um, obviously, if it's one of your podcasts, Pete, then that's the whole walk. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's a shorter podcast, that's maybe half of it. And then I use the other time as thinking time because I find that that's when really good ideas come to me. And, and, and I think you do need to have a little bit of headspace to, you know, just to think. Um, so I'll do that when I'm off. I always do my gratitudes. I always do them, particularly when I'm in the car, because that's um, that's just a, a habit I've got into, that get in the car and that's when you do your, your gratitudes. But I don't drive so much now with Corona. I'm not hardly out anywhere at all. So we tend to do those um, gratitudes when I'm out out on my walk as well. Um, in the winter time, I would get up really early, half five or six, go straight to my desk, do my journaling. If I'm doing journaling, something I have never really got into a great habit, I'll do it for a month and then I'll forget it for a few days and then realize a month has gone by and I haven't done any journaling. But I actually do really see the value in it. Um, but in the winter, then I probably wouldn't go out for my dog walk to maybe eight or nine till it's got light and the, the kids are at school and things like that. So. So I do have a little bit of a routine. Just, I mean, talk to us, I mean, because not everyone will be used to, you know, gratitude. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about that. Um, it just lifts your energy. Just, it's very easy for people to um, just get low in energy and think, woe is me. And, you know, but it's just so valuable to remind yourself what what you've got to be grateful for. And I don't even know how to explain it because I've been doing it for so many years and it's so much a part of my personality to to have a high energy. I'm not a, a low energy person. Um, but I am thankful for everything. I'm thankful for the blue sky. I'm thankful for my eyes to see the wind in my face, the grass. Just, it's not even the big things. It's just everything i you know i don't have i could i could list a hundred things to be grateful for every single day without any bother whereas i know if you if you ask somebody else to write 10 things they're grateful for they might sit and look at a blank piece of paper and it doesn't come naturally but i think maybe it's just because i've been doing it for so long um that i find it easy and it just it just reminds you of what you've got why life is good actually you know Absolutely, no. I mean, it's it's an incredibly powerful exercise. It really is, you know. It's, and it's great to see that that's something you sort of you you, you take care of daily. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing I don't do, which maybe some people might find a bit weird, but I haven't listened to the news for four years. Um, maybe even going close to five years. And sometimes I feel maybe I'm a bit removed from reality. I live in my own little bubble, but why would you listen to all that negativity? You know, okay, yeah, I, I have a little bit of some filters in from other sources like Facebook or somebody says something or you see a headline on a newspaper when you're when you're standing in the, the grocery store paying for, you know, waiting to pay. But I, I, I really protect my energy and have done for years. Um, and I, I don't I don't want to hear people's sob stories, you know, or sat woe is me type things that, you know, Okay, that's very interesting. Mom, we get on, <laughs> you know. Um, so maybe a little bit. Some people wouldn't understand it, but for me, it works for me. Keeps my energy high. Well, it's just, and it's amazing. Obviously, in that time that you've gone on a, a sort of a, a news diet, really. You know, you've started and sold a business. You've, you know, you're you're where you want to be. You're 
goals and ambitions for moving forward? You know, your multiple properties in France, you know, your, your, you know, your wealth club there as well. So it's not done you any harm sort of being isolated from no. the news. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it's, um, yeah, it, it, you might look a bit stupid when people want to know who the, the you know, I know who the prime minister is, but that's about it, you know. So I'm not very up on my current affairs, but I'm up on my world. You know, so. No, absolutely. Listen, I, I, I get it, and I'm, I'm the same myself. I don't, I don't tend to listen to news or other things, and you know, very much, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of whatever's necessary. So yeah, yeah, there's a little bit, tiny bit you need to, to know about what's going on in the world, but especially at the minute. But um, yeah, in, in. In, in small doses. Absolutely. So tell us, I mean, really summarize it for us. You know, what, what would you say is your fire in the belly then? It's just a des- my burning desire to challenge myself and to achieve things that are important to me to achieve. Yeah. That's, that's really it. That's great. So give us an idea. So I love it. I mean, I've, I've found your I found your book on um, oh, on, on Amazon. So oh, we have the the little pause dog training for children on basic yeah. obedience, cool tricks, and fun agility by yourself. The, Duke. Yeah. The other ones on my my last name from my previous marriage. It's Clark with an E. There so you go. It's still in there. Love it. Love it. So tell us how can people reach out to you? Where can we find you? Where we can follow you? Um, you find me on Facebook, uh, just at Juanita Duke, hard one to spell, but it's J-U-A-N-I-T-A, um, Duke, or also on Instagram and LinkedIn, that's probably, or Juanita Duke at Outlook.com, that's where you'll, where you'll find me. Out of curiosity, where, where does Juanita come from? Where does the name originate from, do you know? Um, well, my mother, I think, just had delusions of grandeur and didn't want to have a child with a name the same as somebody else in the street she's always been a bit like that she likes to be um a little bit different so i think there was a movie called houseboat with sophia loren in it around the time i was born and i think maybe jim reeves had a, a novel or a song my Juanita around that time so i don't know exactly where this name came from but there's no spanish blood in me at all just um just a mother who wanted something a bit different Oh, I love it. And, and she got it. There was no other Juanita in the school, you know, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. It's great. It's great to be different, isn't it? You know, yeah, everyone, that's it. That's it. You you know, maybe, a, that, maybe that plays part of my makeup as well and my personality because I was different. Hmm. You know, maybe I, maybe I felt a bit unique as a child, you know, who, who knows where, what forms our personalities, but I think probably all those little tiny bits all... Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question because I mean, I normally ask people and saying as well, you know, do you think with fire in the belly, is it, is it something that that comes with you in age as you grow up, or is it something you're born with? Well, I think, I think we're probably all born with some sort of fire blowing mm-hmm. there because mm-hmm. of the survival of the species. We needed to be able to. Um, get up and walk, and we needed to, you know, um, survive. But I guess your fire can be dampened or it can be fanned and mm. it can become a, a bigger fire depending on your environment, uh, the people around you. So I think part of it's nature and probably part of it's nurture. Absolutely. Yeah, just we're all different, thank goodness. That's yeah, the, exactly. 
That's the main thing. So, Juanita, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. Thank you and, for uh, having me as a guest. I look forward to you, and that's the thing. So people can reach out to you. Certainly, I know the the two pound seventy three club is a very strong well yes. club as well. So I'd say yeah, you know, on Facebook, yeah. make sure get people to you know reach out and and you know certainly there and a wealth of experience as well. So. I wish you all the best for the future and look forward to, to hearing what comes next. So thank and you very same, much. Same to you, Pete. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.